Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Leah West, and I'm here today with two very special guests from the National Security Transparency Advisory Group. First with us, we have Mr. Dominic Rochon. He is the government co-chair of the NSTAG. He's also Senior Assistant Deputy Minister, National and Cybersecurity Branch of Public Safety Canada. And we also have a friend of the show, Thomas Juno, who is the non-governmental co-chair and Associate Professor at the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Thank you so much to both of you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Indeed, pleasure being here. The reason why I've invited you here at this time is because the NSTAG released its first report after its first full year in existence. How would you qualify what's in this report and what you're trying to convey to Canadians with this report? And I'll I'll turn to Thomas first. When the TAG was established and had its first meeting in late August of 2019, uh, and when we, in our first uh, couple meetings, when we tried to figure out where we wanted to go with the first report, first we decided that we'd produce it after one year, no more, no less than that. And instead of having a more specific report that would look at specific aspects of transparency in the national security community and come up with very specific recommendations, we decided that we'd wait until year two for that. And that with our first report, we would aim for a state of the field type of report. So basically, during one year, we held hearings until January in person and since the beginning of the pandemic virtually with a really wide range of stakeholders, folks in government from throughout the national security and intelligence community and outside government, civil society, media, academics, really a broad range of people, basically hearing what everybody had to say about the state of transparency in the national security world in Canada. So this report, which the core of it is about 10 pages, is a a synthesis of all of that. It's a state of the field. Where are we at in terms of transparency, national security in Canada? What are the key challenges? What are the areas where there has been improvement recently? What are areas where there's still some or a lot of improvement to do? And our hope is that it serves as a broad foundation to allow us to get into more specific issues starting for year two. I should have started by asking, what is the mandate of this advisory group? When was it established? And what is the aim of the group? Thanks, Leo. I don't want to revisit history, and I'm sure that your listeners are probably somewhat familiar with what has transpired that led to a National Transparency Advisory Group. But if I can just maybe focus a couple of seconds on National security consultations that happened in 2016, the government of the day had very broad consultations and that ultimately led to uh, new national security legislation and Bill C-59. And embedded in that legislation, there was the creation of a series of transparency and accountability measures. A main component of that was the national security transparency commitment. That commitment has been ongoing for a couple of years. It's led by uh, a group of people that work for me here at Public Safety encompasses all the different departments and agencies across the security and intelligence community within the federal government. And as an add-on or as it supports the national security commitment, a national security transparency advisory group was created, a group of 11 people, as you pointed out, Tama and I are co-chairs, but we have nine other members that join us for meetings, and those members are across academia, civil society, and also a couple of former senior level government officials. And the aim, first and foremost, is to provide advice and guidance to the Deputy Minister of Public Safety, and by extension, the security and intelligence community within the federal family uh, with regard to transparency issues. But also, I I would say it, it serves to increase public awareness, engagement, accessibility to, to, to information and, and essentially promote openness. 
So I want to get back to that piece about advising the deputy minister, but turning back to this report this year that you've produced, the headline you used is what we heard over the last year. So maybe, Tom, I'll start with you, and then I'll return to you, Mr. Rochon, about what it was that you on the NSTAG heard over this first year. So we heard a number of themes that came out prominently through our consultations and through our our own experience, too. Every one of us in the group on the non-governmental side uh, have had various types of exposures to the national security community. Some of us have worked in it. Some of us have dealt with it from the outside, from civil society, have studied it as academics. And so a number of themes emerged. The the first thing that emerged, I think that is important to say, is just the importance of transparency, generally speaking, even in national security, which is an area of government, which is for some obvious reasons, maybe less transparent than other parts of government. I just want to stop you there. When you say transparency, what is it that the TAG considers transparency? How do you define it? So that is actually a very good question. And at this point, as members of the TAG, we don't have a precise answer to that. And there is a reason for that in the sense that we realized in our consultations in the first year that defining transparency is A, extremely difficult and B, extremely important to improve it. So as we worked in the first year, we did not come up with the precise definition of transparency. That definition does exist. The National Security Transparency Commitment that Dominique referred to does include a definition of transparency at the policy level, at the executive level, and and so on. That being said, from our perspective as the TAG, we decided that we would work on the definition of transparency as part of our first report for the second year on which we are working now. And we decided to wait a bit before coming up with that definition simply because we wanted the first report to be an overview of the state of the field, like I said. In that second report, we are going to try to define transparency. That's a hard thing to do because transparency means different things for different people. Uh, Transparency for CSIS is not necessarily the same thing as transparency for CBSA, and it's not necessarily the same thing as transparency for Amnesty International or another NGO. That next report we're working on now will define it and we'll try to propose ways to measure it. Because if you want to say that you're improving transparency, you have to be able to assess any kind of progress you're making. How do you actually quantify that? That's easy to say, but extremely difficult to do. And the other thing that we'll try to do in that next report is uh, how do you institutionalize transparency? Because it is very easy for either at the political level ministers to say, or at the bureaucratic level deputy ministers to say, you have to be more transparent. But in practice, to do that in a way that is sustained, that is durable, and that is real, it needs to be institutionalized. It needs to be routinized. Structures have to be created. Training has to be changed to reflect that to really make it sustainable. So that will really be the focus of our next report. I do want to get back to what you've heard, and maybe I'll turn to Mr. Rochon next on that. But I saw that kind of conflict of not having a really firm definition in the things that you touch on in your report and the way that you discuss certain issues. Some of the discussion you have is very specific. Some of your recommendations about what the government needs to be thinking about going forward can be very specific, but in other areas, I'm thinking about uh, transparency and privacy. It, it's a little bit more opaque. There's, it's not as well-defined about what you're talking about. And you also touch on engagement with racialized and minority communities in Canada, which one would think, well, what does that have to do with transparency? But I, I can see you have to be, I would imagine, worried about defining something so broad that you can't fully get your arms around it as an advisory group, but too narrow and you start to lose the effectiveness of what you're really trying to achieve. And I guess the question is, did you struggle with that in writing this report? 
or did you just say, you know what, we're just going to include everything we heard because we <laughs> we still haven't figured it out yet? To be fair, I think part of the question that you're asking is very similar to the, some of the questions that we were asking ourselves as we brought this group together. As you can appreciate, we brought 11 diverse people that were chosen specifically because of their diversity and their respective backgrounds. But it would be wrong to say that there wasn't a need to educate all of us in various aspects of the work that we needed to do. And as you can also appreciate, the original plan was only to get together four times a year. Four times for a concentrated two or three days where we would bring people together and try to inform ourselves about how we were going to tackle issues of transparency and how best we could approach the subject and provide guidance and recommendations and advice to the community in terms of how to be more transparent. So to your point and to Tama's answer, we asked ourselves questions about transparency, but part of the education also involved uh, educating those who didn't necessarily understand how government works. We needed to introduce what is CSIS, what is CBSA, what is RCMP, what is a PCO and a national security advisor? What are these new review bodies, National Security Intelligence Review Agency, National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians? What about this thing called a privacy commissioner and an information commissioner? So there needed to be some introduction in terms of the, the inner workings of, of government. But at the same time, we also needed representatives from civil society to better understand what are the issues the Canadians are grappling with when it comes to transparency and how they perceive the security and intelligence world. There's also private sector, academia, the legal community. We hosted a panel of journalists to understand how the media thought about these things. We had a panel of human rights experts. We had uh, privacy and cybersecurity experts. We had open government and transparency experts. We had provincial police. So as you can appreciate in our first year, there was an introduction to all of these groups and there was a lot that we were hearing. And a lot of it was fascinating and led to some incredibly interesting conversations. And having to distill all of that and try to understand, okay, how do we focus on a report after our first year? Frankly, the best use we thought of our time would be to say, why don't we just capture the nine themes that you see identified in this first annual report, focusing what we heard into a way that will be informative. And so I think that's where we landed. Similarly, being able then to turn to our second year and to say, now that we've got this foundational information, we can now focus very specifically on two things. Firstly, how to define transparency and how to define how one improves transparency. How do we measure it, which is what we're going to focus on within the next few weeks. And we've already started, frankly, and we'll likely have a report ready coming out in, in early spring. And then secondly, we're going to turn to marginalized Canadians, communities, because we felt that's really an area that we need to understand and how those communities perceive transparency when it comes to the security and intelligence apparatus. Just to add on that, this has not been done before in the sense that the Canadian national security and intelligence community, as we say in the report, traditionally has not been very transparent, partly for good reasons, but maybe not completely. Such a document... Reflexive secrecy? Is that what it yes. is? Yes. Uh, that's part of the explanation. There's a culture of secrecy that is partly justified, but maybe uh, is taken too far in some cases. 
So our, our idea this year, and I think the first report does that, it's a lay of the land. Where are we at in this country in terms of national security and transparency? What do we know? What do we not know? What are areas where there is a need for improvement? What are areas where there's a need for better understanding? Uh, and what's our role? The, the tag was created just over a year ago. It was new. Most of us had never met each other. Uh, so there was a need to define an identity, to build our mandate. Who are we? What's the point of our work? So in that sense, this report acts as a foundation for more precise next steps. And when you fulfilled the mandate of advice, for example, of the deputy minister, should we expect that to be done through reports like we typically see in review reports? Or will that be done more informally with consultations between yourselves as co-chairs and the deputy minister? I think it's both, frankly, Leah. I think it's important to have pulled everything together in one actual annual report and really appreciate you having us on to be able to trumpet a little bit about that report. But what we're going to try and do is through social media and and through our public safety website and, and other means, try to explain to people that this small group does exist and it's going to be there to try and shed some light and bring to bear public debate on some of these very key issues when it comes to transparency, because that's really what's going to ultimately start changing the culture when it comes to, to being more transparent. Obviously, the deputy minister is the key client. He comes and, and meets with the group. We have a, a privileged access to him and we're able to speak to him and have a conversation with him. And frankly, in my view, both things are happening at, at once. We're, we're able to have a conversation with him and then, and then he in turn can then spread the word to his deputy minister colleagues across the community. He can have conversations with the minister as well. But at the same time, it's also an opportunity for us to illustrate to the public what are the, some of the things that we're grappling with and to all Canadians who have access. That's where you have an advantage of having an annual report. And we also summarize all of our meetings and uh, post that on our website just so that people can, can get a feel for the progress that we're making. I, I just add a couple things here. First, uh, the core of our mandate is to report to the Deputy Minister of Public Safety. And then on that basis, he decides to share if he wants our findings, our advice, either formally in the report or informally in our meetings with him to the rest of the national security and intelligence community. And, and from our perspective in the group, that it's certainly our hope that he will do that. That being said, the way the group has evolved over the last year, and, and this is where I think the general type of work that we did in the first uh, 15, 14 months was important to figure out who we were. We've pretty much decided that there's a bit of a second uh, aspect to our mandate, which goes the other way. That is, we see ourselves a bit as a transmission belt from the national security community to the general public, to civil society, in the sense that through this report, through our meetings, through the, the minutes of our meetings that we post on the website, through some of our other activities with time, we can help inform Canadians on uh, the national security community, on its work, its mandate, what it does, uh, what it doesn't do, and, and so on. So I think that mandate really goes both ways. And the other thing that I'd add here is there's a new element to our work that we've just recently begun, and it should be online uh, soon. I don't have a precise date at this point, but soon, in the sense that we recently met with the director of CSIS, uh, and had a, a very good conversation with him and one of his deputy directors on the services efforts to improve transparency. We uh, asked him questions, he gave us answers, we provided advice and feedback on what the service does. And that's another way, in addition to our reports, for us to try to 
uh, support the work of the national security community to be more transparent. And the output of that meeting will be, again, a report that we will be putting online, that we will advertise, which I think is a way for us, again, to play that role of a transmission belt. We, we will help the national security community communicate with Canadians, and we will promote uh, transparency efforts in that sense. We'll also provide advice on how the service can do better uh, in that sense. You know, the report itself, we're very proud of it. It's a key element of our work, but there are other elements, too, that will build up uh, over time. One of the things, and I touched on it already, is this term reflexive secrecy. And, and you mentioned having met with a variety of officials from across the national security community. Did the group sense that reflexive secrecy in those engagements, or did you feel an openness to this idea of increased transparency? I think the answer is both. We were very happy with what a lot of the government officials we met told us. Uh, generally speaking, they were frank and candid, as much as they can be in an unclassified environment, of course. And so in that sense, I don't want to give the impression that from our perspective, we were dissatisfied with the presentations we got from government officials when we talk about reflexive secrecy. That being said, it is our conclusion uh, collectively in the group, based on conversations, consultations with government officials, but also with non-government officials, whether civil society, academics, retired government officials. It's also our experience uh, as members of the group, whatever our background is, academia, civil society, or government, that there is a, a problem in the government, in the national security community, whereby, as we say in the report, there's a reflex to uh, hoard information, to protect information, of course, we all understand that in the national security community, some of the information has to remain classified. Sources, methods, etc., advice to the government, that definitely has to stay classified. Nobody is, is debating that. That being said, traditionally, there has been a, a reluctance to share information that in some cases can be shared. I do see an improvement at that level over the years. Uh, the work of NSIRA and NSICOP that Nick mentioned has led to the release of unprecedented amounts of information. I remember when I read the first NSICOP annual report, there is a, a sheer amount of information in there that was just not publicly available before. That's an improvement. A lot of the information that is in those NSICOP reports could have been released before. There was not necessarily any reason not to. Maybe the means weren't there, the channels weren't there. But still, so you see that improvement, but there's still a, a long ways to go, which is, I think, actually the first line of the report, that there's been improvement, but there's still ways to go. Mr. Rocha, in terms of themes that you were hearing from civil society groups, what were some of the key takeaways or kind of consistent messages that the NSTAG heard? Well, frankly, you know, reflexive secrecy being one of them, and if I can just speak candidly very quickly on that theme, having worked for government now for about 20 years and a majority of my career has been in the security and intelligence world, it goes without saying that there is a culture of secrecy has been, I would argue since day one, particularly for those departments and agencies that work on life and death matters, where if information does get leaked out, classified information that ultimately shouldn't, someone's life could be at stake. So when the margin of error leads to that kind of consequence, it stands to reason that everyone then shifts to a culture of, well, let's make sure that doesn't happen and let's overclassify things and let's make sure we don't share information. And history has proven that to be detrimental, whether it be Air India and, and the aftermath of that, where it was shown that law enforcement agencies weren't sharing information as they should to the Snowden revelations and all of that came out of that. So I think 
the gov governments of the day, not just Canada, but other governments have understood that in order to make sure that we have uh, trust established with populations, that you need to try and find the right balance. And certainly when you look at things that we read in the papers every day, there seem to be all sorts of issues, whether it be with not necessarily reflexive secrecy, but issues with departments and agencies not sharing information and having issues of duty of candor. I've listened to your Intrepid podcast before in terms of the way that you go over all of the various national security cases that are ongoing. And obviously, different agencies and different uh, departments have been found wanting. So not surprisingly, as we've listened to civil society, what they read in the media ultimately translates to what they believe is fact. And so there's a little bit of demystifying that needs to happen. But some of these departments and agencies need to be held to account and need to understand that they need to do a better job of actually communicating. And one of one of the themes was how the government communicates, because ultimately you, you can't hope that the very bureaucratic way that government of uh, Canada departments and agencies communicate certain things actually translates to people understanding what it is that we do. So there needs to be a, a better way of communicating. The way that one of my former bosses, when I worked at the communication security establishment, phrased it, which I think is a, a very powerful coining of a phrase, she said, you need to make sure that you explain the rule book, but not necessarily the playbook of what we do in the security intelligence world. And I think we still need to do a great deal of explaining the rule book. Who's who in the security and intelligence world? What are the various rules in place? That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give away the playbook and all of your sources and techniques that ultimately are used to try and find out what the bad guys are up to. So those are some of the themes, obviously, information management, emerging technology, data management, privacy and security, all of those themes came about as we highlighted in the report. That was one of the things that stood out to me as someone who used to work in the national security space was this call for national security actors to engage with communities and inform them of their rights when they do engage with the public. And I thought that was very interesting. It's something that you tend to see a bit more at the local policing level, but I don't think is traditionally done at the federal agency level. So I'm really interested to see how that plays out, what that would actually look like for someone engaging uh, with communities at that kind of investigation level. I don't know if you had thoughts or if, if that was just general advice for all of our agencies that you can't just look to the communities as sources of information, but you also need to engage with them and make them understand where their rights lie as well. We have members of the NSTAG who have expertise in this very area and have been incredibly helpful in terms of illustrating some of the things that uh, government can be much better at. And they've started echoing that. It's certainly also one of the reasons why we chose as a theme for a report for our second year. So that second report is going to be outreach. And we're going to be, we're going to be inviting members of those communities to come and speak with us. And we're also going to make sure that we're capturing some concrete advice on how federal departments can do that much better is how I would characterize it. I think that says it very well. One, one thing that constantly came out in our engagement with non-government uh, stakeholders in the first year, plus, as Dominique said, based on the experience of some of our some of the members of our group who come from civil society and have a specific expertise or knowledge or experience at this level, is that too often the lack of transparency uh, the lack of public information, the lack of clear public information, sometimes there's information out there, but it's not so clear, feeds suspicion. 
Uh, and whether that's the desired outcome or not on the part of the intelligence community, it is what happens. It is what it is. And, and I think there's a growing recognition that this is a problem, especially at the senior levels of the intelligence community. That's what came out of our recent conversation with the director of the service. That's what came out of our conversations with leaders of the community in the last year. But it is still a problem on the ground where this perceived lack of transparency feeds suspicion. In a democracy, that's not good, period. Uh, so it has to change. But also from a more uh, pragmatic perspective for the intelligence community to be able to do its job better when it has relationships of trust with Canadians in general, members of specific communities, it's easier to have exchanges with them. It's easier to target uh, specific threats, those that actually pose threats as opposed to those that are not threatening. And this is a point that really came out a lot in, in our consultations and our conversations with multiple people, that the lack of transparency feeds suspicion, it feeds mistrust, uh, and that's a problem at multiple levels. So Dominique said that'll be the topic of uh, our third report later in 2021. A couple of times with the report, you mentioned an evolution of the landscape caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. It's really not clear to me as a reader what it is that you're getting at there, and, and maybe you haven't figured it out either, but can you talk a bit about how you see the pandemic having an impact on your work or transparency in general? In terms of having an impact on our work, like everybody else, we've had to work virtually uh, since March. But in terms of our assessment of the pandemic on the work of the community, we did touch on it a bit in the report, uh, but we didn't come to any definitive conclusion, largely because uh, there was obviously a limit to the num number of issues that we could cover in a report that we did want to keep relatively short. But it is definitely something that will come up a fair bit in the two next reports for the, the second year that we've planned. The first one on how to measure, assess, and institutionalize transparency. There will be a COVID dimension to that, how it has affected the work of the community in, in from that perspective. And on the report after that on relationships with communities. But at this point, from the perspective of the group itself, I don't have much more than that because we're keeping that for the next year. I'll just add, and, and Tomas captured it perfectly there. I think it goes without saying that the COVID-19 pandemic has had such a profound impact on society and on government and on Canada in general that we couldn't possibly write uh, our first annual report without actually mentioning that this is all obviously going to have an impact to the degree that it will on national security activities and transparency. It remains to be seen. Some of the obvious linkages points of, are, of course, the COVID alert app and how privacy concerns were being dealt with there. That brought about lots of parallels to the way that data and privacy were being managed by national security agencies. So that just gives you a flavor. It, it came up a, a lot of different times. We didn't think that given all the other conversations happening around COVID-19, that we could do it justice by having our own themed COVID-19 report related to national security just yet. But as Tama points out, we're conscious that it's an underlying theme that will likely pop up for each of the two reports that we have planned for year two, and we'll see where that takes us from there. The last question I had was a nerdy one, mostly for me. At the back of the report, you've actually gone into some comparative work looking at transparency initiatives and policies from other transnational organizations and also other states. And I, I'm just wondering why you engaged in that exercise and what you hope your readers to take from that. I'm happy that you noticed what's in the annex because you always wonder if people actually read the annexes. 
There are a number of annexes in the report. There is a first annex that just provides background on the NSTC, another annex on the national security community architecture as a whole, which really tries to do what the government hasn't really done so far, which is provide basic information on the who's who in terms of the community in Canada. There's a, another section that provides an overview of the meetings we've had, who we talked to, and then there's what you just mentioned, which is a benchmarking exercise on what uh, other countries are doing. The goal here was to hopefully, and I hope that it works out, to provide a, a service to anybody who's interested in these issues, uh, to put the information out there in a way that is not really available right now. So if anybody is interested in transparency in general, not just in Canada, there's a lot of information that the Secretariat that Dominique mentioned that works with him and public safety worked really hard to put together. And this is a really useful reference document. There's a lot of information in those annexes. It's separate because it's not the work of the TAG itself in terms of the advice that we provide to the deputy minister. So this fits more with the second part of our mandate that I mentioned earlier on where we want to act as a bit of a transmission belt, helping the government put that information out there. And if you scan through these few annexes, that's actually information that is not really available in a concise way right now. So hopefully for those, whether in academia and civil society or in the government itself, and perhaps in other governments, in the media, we can help them access uh, that information. I would even be more ambitious than, uh, than Thomas in, in saying that ultimately my hope is that we can better foster informed public debate on issues of national security. And the root of transparency is to illustrate what people are doing so people can have an informed view of that. And in my view, to be informed is not just to understand what Canada is doing, but to understand comparatively what other Western societies are doing, whether it be our Five Eyes partners or Germany or the Netherlands, for example, which are some of the international jurisdictional comparators that we use, but also the policies of national security and intelligence in, in select government organizations at the international level, whether it be OECD or, or NATO, et cetera. So I hope that as we provide each of our reports, we're also going to be in a position to continue a little bit of education in terms of understanding what resources are out there. And there, as Thomas points out, there's a lot of information so in order to be able to point people in the right direction to get better distilled information so that it will help people then provide commentary, challenge us, because obviously we don't have all the answers, we're flagging certain areas so that we hope that will foster that informed public debate. And in order to do that, you need to have these resources. Advancing informed debate on national security issues is our raison d'etre here at Intrepid. So we thank you for those efforts. I think I'll leave it there. I want to thank you both for your work on the NSTAG and for joining us here today. And hopefully we'll have you back when you have future reports to publish. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Leah. Much appreciated.